Um, I'm Eric, uh, Pastor Eric, and I'm the interim pastor for missions. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you personally, I look forward to it. And thank you for being here and thank you for joining us online. Pastor Jim was planning on being here and delivering the message, but he came in contact with someone in his family who is uh, COVID positive. And so he thought it would be best to let uh, to step back. He has tested negative already, but he said out of abundance of caution that um, he should stay back. We've got Easter coming. So we uh, the message is from Mark chapter 3. And so I, I, I'm, it's an honor to be preaching and staying in his, sitting in his place because he's a man of prayer. He's a man of the word. And it's an honor to serve with him as our senior pastor. So... Um, if you enjoyed the message, then I'll just thank you ahead of time. But if there's a problem you have with the message, just take that up with Jim, okay? <laughs> and so um, we're um, in Mark chapter 3. We're going to take a look at 1 through 19 parallel passages of this incident or this passage actually is found in Matthew chapter 12, 9 to 21 and Luke 6 to 16. 6 to 16. And we'll refer back and forth to it, but just to give you a kind of a, f a fuller view of the three Gospels talking about this, this uh, occurrence. And we're calling this a crucial turning point in the ministry of Jesus, his earthly ministry. And we're going to see a number of those, but there's one major one that affects us also present day. So what do I mean by turning points, those historic turning points, or those personal turning points that just touch other lives and impact. Let me give you one example. Take you back to June 12th, 1987. President Ronald Reagan, he's visiting Berlin, Germany, and he's given his now major speech standing in front of the Brandenburg Gate. And in that, he challenges the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, to, turn, to tear down the wall that's behind him. And just to remind you of that impact, let's take a look at that short clip from CBS News. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Now that resonated in that time. So this is June 87. By November of 89, that wall would be down. In those two years, there's a major change in what's happening in Eastern Europe. Not only does the Soviet Union disintegrate, but the Cold War ends. And so it ushered in a new time. So at that same time, Julie and I and our family were serving in the military in Germany, where I'm serving and flying out of Stuttgart, Germany, and we at the same time are wrestling with what are we going to do because we're seeing all these masses of people coming from Hungary and from Poland and Czech Republic coming in, and we just felt that God was stirring in our hearts to do something. And so we, we reached a conclusion that God was using that as a turning point in our life to resign from the military and go into full-time missions and ministry. So you never know what turning points will do and what it would precipitate in others' lives. And so we're going to take a look at this passage and see some of those turning points. So we'll be in Mark chapter 3, and uh, let's pray right now. Father God, I just want to thank you. Thank you that you know our times you know all the times. So God, I pray that you would work mightily in our life, in our church. And I pray you would open your scriptures and show us that we can rely on you for you, the man of law, and you come to bring us life. Let's give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So, as we talk about this passage, it's kind of a continuation on of what's been happening, right? It's the idea that people are just kind of coming to terms with the identity and the authority of who Jesus is. He's beginning to share his message, the kingdom is at hand. He's been introduced as a lamb who would take away the sins of the world. He's beginning to say, this is what it's like to follow God, to come to know him. And of course, that puts him in opposition, in conflict with the Jews, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes. And just last week, Pastor Tome took us through that passage at the end of chapter 2, when him and the disciples, Jesus and the disciples, are going through the grain fields, and they're picking off the tops, and they're eating. And then the Pharisees say, hey, what your disciples are doing is not lawful. And then there's this discourse, and Jesus kind of ends the conversation that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so that's kind of the end of it. But you would think the Pharisees would have a little bit of pause, but we find out they continue this animosity, this conflict, wanting to draw Jesus out so they could accuse him in chapter 3. So let's take a look at chapter... Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and we're calling this the climax of the Sabbath controversy. The climax of the Sabbath controversy. And we'll take a look at Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful? On the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. And they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of the heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And so this continuation of this conflict, that Jesus is setting up a new way, that the Sabbath controversy spilling over to where he's at. He has left the grain fields. He's traveled along in the area of Galilee. And he's in a synagogue we don't know. But in that synagogue, as he's teaching, there's a man with a withered hand. And also the Pharisees are there. Pharisees are there. And there, there's this controversy building now. Is, is Jesus going to uphold the law on the Sabbath? Or is there... Is he going to break it so they can accuse him? And for us, it might seem strange that why all these rules and that many rules and how oppressive was all the extra rules that they had for the, uh, for the, for the Sabbath. Sabbath, definitely the fourth commandment that Moses brought down. But in the centuries that followed on, all ten commandments, they continued to add more teachings Two, how to under, how to live to be pleasing to God and what to do and what not to do. And they're, and all the teaching from the scribes and the rabbis are in, in the Mishnah and the Talmud. And this will give you an idea how, how focused they were on what you can and can't do. There are 24 chapters in the Talmud just devoted to the Sabbath. And in meticulous details, what you could not do because it would bring you further away. It would take you away from God. It wouldn't be pleasing to God. Little things like you couldn't spit, you couldn't write, you couldn't eat, you couldn't brush the dirt off your clothes, that scribes couldn't carry a pen or a tailor, a needle or students' books because they might be tempted to work. 
Carrying anything heavier than a dry fig was prohibited because that was work. You couldn't kill an insect. You couldn't light a candle. You couldn't snuff out a candle. You couldn't even bathe because the water might go onto the floor and that would be cleaning it, and that's work. You couldn't leave a radish in salt because it would pickle, and pickling was work. You could not look in a mirror, particularly women, because they might see a gray hair and work to pull it out. Now, if I passed through a mirror, I would spend hours in front of it probably. But you get the idea, and one of the most ridiculous things that was very obvious that it was hypocritical is that they even would say you can't go out of your household, leave your doorway, and you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet. But of course, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had a workaround. They would get to the doorway, they'd walk through 3,000 feet, they'd pull out a stick or a piece of rope, put it between two buildings, and say, I'm now walking through my doorway again, and do another 3,000, another 3,000. So this idea of how oppressive it was, how hypocritical it was and how Jesus was pointing out that these are not the true shepherds of Israel. That as it said in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that God is going to send his shepherd and he was going to shepherd his people. And so we find that this is what's going on right now. They're coming into conflict to each other. You can imagine what the weight the people in Israel were under, not only Roman occupation, but particularly all the religious rules and regulations and then you have Jesus speaking, talking about life, talking about he's bringing hope, talking about come unto me all who are burdened, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me and you'll have rest for your soul. Those are words that were so different. His parables, his teachings talk about life, talk about God's mercy and kindness. And what they got was a lot of oppression and rules that they couldn't follow. So that's the scene we've got and it's coming to a culmination because there's going to be a turning point here. Luke says in his gospel that the withered man had a right hand that was bad. And so in that time, most people are right-handed. Everything was manual. You couldn't work as hard. So as he's there and he's uh, kind of, he knows what's going to happen. One of the gospels said that Jesus knew what they were going to say. He knew that this was a trap that they were looking to accuse him that, hey, this is a man, and it's a Sabbath, it's not life-threatening, he shouldn't be healing. And Jesus knew his thought, their thoughts, and he walked right into it. He stepped into it because he wanted to highlight the difference of what he was teaching and what he was bringing and what they were living under and what it's like to live under the law of deeds that make you better or worse but not bring you closer to God. So in Matthew 12, 10 to 12, it says this. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Oh, how much more value is man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So God was showing them in the form of Jesus what value he had on, 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 on people and that he was there to rescue them. And when he posed that question to them, they were stumped. They couldn't answer because he had checkmated them. Because if he said, oh yeah, it's good to do on the Sabbath, they were saying all our laws are worthless. So they couldn't say that. They, he, second thing he's revealing to them because they wouldn't answer, 
how calloused and hard their hearts were to the people they were supposed to serve and bring closer to God. They were in this logical contradiction. The real issue was what honors God? To help, to bless, to show mercy and compassion, or to have these strict law-abiding rules that, that, that determine where you stand with God. And so you can imagine they could not answer. They didn't. To answer it, they would contradict themselves, so they kept silent. And we find out that Jesus was angry. And so he called the man forward, and he stretched out his hand, and as soon as he did, it was perfectly healed. And you can imagine, in that synagogue, it was probably the local people that knew this guy, and all of a sudden, he's healed, they know the guy. And that buzz and that excitement is there, and they're probably celebrating this. But at the same time, the Pharisees were humiliated, and they were angry. And in verse 6, it says this, And the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians and gets them against him how to destroy him. So you would, would pause and say, what just happened here? Jesus has made a point. He's showing his authority, but they didn't. And they came down and into that open conflict. They leave the place. They find an ally, which is not a religious sect. The Herodians aren't like the Sadducees or the Pharisees. They're the ones who are backing the political party, so to speak, of the King Herod. And in the same way, they were standing with Rome, who was the oppressor of the Jews and that the Jews hated. And these were the ones that they're going to ally themselves with for one purpose alone, which was to destroy Jesus. So, we see here that the controversy with the Sabbath and with the Pharisees now go, to, it's wide open. They are now looking to destroy him, not just to prove that he's not the teacher, he's not upholding the law, but to find out a way to destroy him. And so from this point, we see Jesus then make a transition in his ministry. So there's a transition in Jesus' ministry that follows from here, from verse 7 on. So let me read verse 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and Edom and from beyond the Jordan and from the Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And that's Mark 7, 3, 7 to 8. So it's a crucial turning point in another way. Now he's going to withdraw. He's going to leave. And so... The word withdraw here is, has a military connotation. It means kind of like to retreat from the battlefield. I like to think that he is pivoting from a conflict to be more focused on what his ministry is. He is very kingdom-minded. And we're in this section right now that we're reading in verse 7 and 8 when Mark is kind of summarizing a large portion of Jesus' ministry because even though we're in only in chapter 3, a year and a half has already gone into his ministry. He's already been teaching and parables. He's already called men to be his disciples and follow him. But now there's another element happening. And now he's going to withdraw and he's going to serve vast crowds at the beach. And so he's going to retreat. He's going to move and withdraw and come over to this place. It's interesting in what we've just read that Jesus' fame is spreading far and wide. We see all those places that are, are, are enumerated. And those are over 100 miles away. And these people are coming to Jesus. 
An average person walks about 25 to 30 miles a day. So they're coming to see him. They're walking multiple days to be with him and hear his teaching. Mark also said that twice that it was a great crowd. So he says that twice to emphasize that this is not just a small gathering. Most put it at 1,000. Some put it at 10,000 people were gathering here. So Jesus' popularity was growing, and we can see that they're pressing in. They're just wanting to touch him, but at the same time, he wanted to maintain his effectiveness in teaching. And so in verse, in the next verses, we will see here that Jesus has told his disciples some things that he could do so he could kind of make sure he stays on the teaching angle. It says, and then he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So we'd see Jesus, and now he's, he's kind of moving with the crowd. He also realizes when all these multitude are gathering to him, he needed to be able to push off a little bit when it got too, too much around him so that he can continue his teaching. And it becomes a pattern he uses, and we'll see it again in chapter 4 of Mark. And so he continues his teaching. That's that balance, how to be effective. Sometimes we think that that's more important is a great gain a great crowd. But effectiveness is just staying focused on what has to happen. And for Jesus, it was being kingdom-minded. And so he taught them because the issue was, who do you say that I am? Do you see me as just another teacher? Or am I the son of God, the lamb who came to save you and to be slain for the sins of the world? So this is what's going on. Now, in the crowd... He's healing demons, and the demons know who he is. But look what he says here in 11 and 12 in our passage. And whenever an unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus could have received testimony of witness from demons, but that's not who he's come to save. It's us. It's those who were there. So he's telling them to be quiet because they are the ones that are going to have to make up their mind. Is he? Is he the Messiah that was once prophesied? Is he the one that we will follow? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? And so as a suffering servant, he's still kingdom-minded. And so it's, the passage continues and it says here now that Jesus is going to select from his 12 disciples the apostles. He's going to select 12 disciples at the mountain. And that's when 13 through 19. So in response to the increasing pressure and the next phase of his ministry, Jesus is going to go ahead and do an intentional shift in his strategy. He's now going to appoint 12 men who would be in a position to do specifically what he's called them to do. And before he does, he does something that we all should do before major decisions or we want to see God work and that is prayer. In Luke's account, it says this in verse 12 and 13a. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when he had came down, he called his disciples to come. And from them, 12. And he chose from them, 12. So this is a key moment. Before I get on, go continue on with our story and our message just want to take a break here. Just how important prayer is. And for us, as we're coming up to the, sea, the, Christ, excuse me, the Easter season, just three weeks away, 
we set aside time both before Christmas and Easter to spend time in prayer for those who would come and join us, for those who are close to us that we want to invite to hear the gospel, to be given an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. So beginning next week, right after the last service, we're going to have our first of our concert of prayers, and I want to invite you to come to that. And then we'll be praying that time, and then we're going to have follow that with five more hours of prayer. It will be from Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. That's the 22nd to the 24th. And so you'll be receiving a card in the mail this coming week to invite you to that. If we don't have your correct address, please put it on the communication card and use that communication card all the time when you're here so we know you're here. Praises and also prayers that we can, have. We can be praying for you and, and rejoicing with you. You'll see on the seats around you these invest and invite cards. I'd like to take some time today, both here and online, to kind of who are the people that are close to you you want us to be praying for that they might know Jesus, that they might walk closer to with the king. Fill these out, take the big card and put it in a box in the back and use this as a memory to, remi- to, remember, to remind yourself. If you're online, just email or send a letter to the office and we'll write down those names and we'll include them in the prayers that we're doing at the Council of Prayer. So now let's go back, back to our, our text here. And so... We see that this is a crucial turning point for Jesus. He's had a lot of disciples and people follow him. And at this moment, he now is going to choose 12. He's keeping his focus on the salvation message. And he wants to be able to bring people in now and designate them as these are the special ones that I'm going to pour my life into. So there's a deliberate shift. There's a, a strategic moment of Christ's ministry now where he's going to give them this authority. And it's an inkling of what's going to happen as a church is born, that he, that the responsibility for the gospel is going to come from these three, these 12 men onto every generation until it reaches where we are today. And our responsibility is that next generation. So why did he choose these 12 in a specific way? I'll give you three reasons. First of all, It was to train them through instruction, but by example. To be close to them when they were walking and they were on the way. Who is this person? Because they were still wrestling with what God is unfolding and they needed to spend time with God. We need to spend time with God. God is unfolding things in our midst. We need to be close to Him. But that was one of the reasons for the apostles. The second thing is He sent them out to preach. And then the third thing is he gave him authority to heal people and to cast out demons. And they gave him authority because he is the author of life. And he has the authority to give authority to others to do this. So take a look at this passage in 13 to 15. It kind of summarized that. And when he came up to the mountain, he called those to him that he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also called apostles so they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to give him authority over demons. And so this is God's plan beginning to unfold of how he's going to reach the world. They're waiting at that time for him to establish this kingdom, 
but God is in control of the sovereign flow of history. And he is going to appoint a church to fulfill that purpose. We are living in that church age. And until Jesus returns from the 12 apostles, through every century, through every nation, every people group, it is our responsibility to share the gospel. Thank you, brother. Mark Robert Coleman, in the book, The Master Plan for Salvation, puts it this way. Jesus' concern, his concern, was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Remarkable as it may seem, Jesus started to gather these men before he had even organized his first evangelistic campaign or even preached a sermon in public. Men were to be his method to winning the world to God. The initial objective of Jesus' plan was to enlist men who could bear witness to his life and carry on his work after he returned to the Father. So Jesus appointed 12. He could have appointed some other 12. He could have appointed, he could have appointed 120 or 12,000. We don't know why, but in God's manifold wisdom, he chose those 12. And one thing we know about them is they were kind of unimpressive guys. They're from little backwater towns around the Sea of Galilee. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them lived in the area of Capernaum. Yeah, they had some biblical knowledge of Old Testament scriptures because they had went to the synagogue, but no one would ever confuse them to be scholars or to be lawyers of the law. These were ordinary people, but when they spent time with Jesus, they they scoured the word, and then we're filled with the Holy Spirit. God used these 12 to turn the world upside down and to bring on the church age. So 12 might seem to be an odd choice, but it was God's wisdom. They were uneducated, untrained, unimpressive, like myself and most of us that are here. And those are the people God uses, those who know that they're weak, to know that there's nothing good that dwells in this flesh. It's only what God's done that makes a difference. And then when we open ourselves up to God and say, use us, we can be those vessels that he's going to use to complete and move on his plans for this time and our areas of life. So he chose those 12, but he's choosing men and women from amongst us today to do the same thing. And so let's now move from the first century, chapter 3 of Mark, and we'll just kind of go up right here to Lake City, the 21st century, and talk about next steps or applications or what am I going to do with what I just heard. So the first thing is, from what we've studied this morning, was I, we have to guard our hearts for the legalistic orientation of our faith. We are spring-loaded we have an affinity to rules, to be legalist, to point out wrong and do this and do that. And we think we're drawing closer to God and actually we're just living in the flesh. We're using that as, an, as a substitute of drawing near to God and being refreshed and drinking from the fount of living water and spending time with the author of life. And that is what we need to be doing. Everything else is going to pass away. All our righteousness is at filthy rags. It's only when we stand in the righteousness of Jesus that we will say we are accepted in the, in the Father. 
And so having that legalistic bend will not serve us. We need to understand that's not what we're prone to. And remember, to draw close to God. The second kind of step we could take is connected to this, and that is the idea of I will, I will find my rest alone in Jesus. And so this idea of the Sabbath and how you rest, it underscores a bigger issue is the burdens that we feel that who are we, what are we, and why are we? What rules we have to obey, the failures in our life. There's no rest. There could be a depression. It could be anxiety. He spoke to them that he was that rest. And we need to find our rest in Jesus alone. We only find it at the foot of the cross and the life that comes with the resurrection that he freely gives to every person who calls on the name of Jesus. Mark Twain had a summary of life. He said there are two most important times in a person's life. The time he's born and the time he finds out why. And I would tell you that we do not find out why we are born until we go and meet with the author of life. And he begins to speak into us that we're sons and daughters of the Most High. And he has plans. Excuse me. I get choked up. He has plans and purposes for us. And so if you do not have that rest, the rest, that peace that passes all understanding, then this is the opportunity for you to say, I want to rest in you. I want to rest in the provision you've made in the cross that Jesus died in my place and that I don't have to strive anymore and the burdens that I carry I can release and I can live in the newness of life that comes in following Jesus. The third point I'd like to illustrate is that, that we, as we follow Jesus, he wants to make us disciples. I will follow Jesus and make disciples. The 12 were chosen. The 12 were chosen. And if you remember in that passage in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, he's praying to the Father. He says, I'm not praying just for these. I'm praying for those who would believe on them through these. And that means he's praying for us, that he wants us to join him in being disciple makers. And we at Lake City believe that parents and grandparents are the first and best disciples of those in their family. That we share what God has done to us. That we share the salvation that we've experienced and the goodness of following Jesus. That we share scripture with them and we bathe them in prayer. That's how we do that. And then also, we have resources available. If you're thinking, how do I do that in my family? Stop at the Faith at Home Center and pick up resources there. If you're wondering at... How do I do that? I need someone to come alongside him. Pastor David, all our leaders with the children's ministry and the youth ministries want to come alongside you so you can make disciples in your home. If you're on that journey still of being, following Jesus, and you're saying, how do I be a disciple before I'm a disciple maker? There are places that we can go for Bible study. There are a number of men's and women's and small groups. And if you're interested in that, just write on your communication card, card, I need to get plugged in to a study. And so for us to be disciple makers, to follow Jesus, that's what he wants to do. He wants to bear fruit through us. And one of the ways that we can kind of grow as a discipler is that we had heard earlier in the sermon 
in, the, in our service, which was a Colson Fellowship Program that's coming here to Lake City. It's strenuous, and it helps you become a stronger disciple. There's a lot of information coming on that. But if you're interested in it, just on your communication card, say Colson Program. And so the last thing I want to share with you is that on Easter, we're going to have a baptism service. And if you've never been baptized and, and publicly declared, declared, I'm a follower of Jesus, this is your opportunity to be baptized, to write on your card, baptism. And we'll get a hold of you, and we'll be, get you into class and get you ready for that baptism. Because we, to be a follower, to be a disciple, and be disciple-maker, God's plan for our lives. So, with that, let me close us in prayer and commit what we've heard to the Lord. Father God, I just want to thank you for your great mercy. I thank you that you order the steps of our life and you order and, and are in control of all the times of our life. And we see that in this passage, that you're looking at the bigger things, that the kingdom mindset that you have. And I pray for us that we would be fresh and walking and following after you and not try to serve you through dead legalistic ways. And we pray that our hearts will always rest in you, that our soul would be at peace. And Father, if there's any here that do not know that rest, that today they would say yes to you. If you're sitting there and you don't know this peace and this rest for your soul, ask Jesus today to show it to you. And he will. And write on your communication card. And God, thank you that you have chosen us to be your lights in this place at this time and help us to be faithful and be a good steward of the gospel you've given us. We just thank you in the great name of Jesus. Amen.